Well, good morning. How are we? Good. Good to see you all. It's my first time preaching since we've all been back, and it's much better than staring at a very small camera right there in the back the whole time uh, to actually see people. So welcome. My name's RD. I'm one of the pastors here. And I also want to say welcome to those of you that are watching at home. Uh, my wife, I hope, uh, our girls, uh, at least for maybe a few minutes, see dad, and then they just kind of, that's about it. Uh, uh, but happy Father's Day uh, to uh, all you dads out there. And I also want to say, for those of you uh, kids in here, which I know we have a lot right now who are making it through a whole service, uh, you guys are awesome. You're awesome. Hopefully you grabbed a, um, I think a sermon pack guide or something when you came in. I see one right there. There we go. Where you can actually take notes on the sermon and have, what's the big idea of the message. I'm not sure yet what it is, so hopefully you can hear something in the message and write that down, and then maybe you can tell your parents that's what R.D. was saying, uh, but that is uh, great, and so those of you kids watching at home, uh, parents watching at home with the kids, we had several times where we were watching at home. It's one of those, you know, pastors are just like, just like you moments where we're watching at our back porch, you know, I think Greg was talking... Uh, who knows about something with Romans. And I think about reconciliation and all these things and our girls just come up to our back porch and they are just fighting each other, you know, and we're just like, quit fighting, we're learning about reconciliation right now. So we have to press pause and deal with that. And just, I mean, that's just the reality of our life right now, you know, isn't it? It's just things are going play and then we press pause and then we press play again. And so it's good though to just be here. Um, I know, but I'm God's word, and uh, I'm really glad to be here today. If you are a kid uh, and you want to write down, I've got five words I'm going to say in my message. I'm going to say more than that, but five words that you can write down to just, when I say it, you can write it down, okay? Are you ready? Or anybody wants to write these down, you know, you can, okay? Uh, number one is God, so, yep, he's going to be in this one. Uh, God, conquerors. Conquerors, C-O-N-Q-U-E-R-O-R-S. Yes. <laughs> uh, sleeping. Juneteenth, which is J-U-N-E-T-N-N-T-E-E-N-T-H. Juneteenth. And this one I'll spell for you. It's Kensuki. K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. So there you go, boys and girls. You're welcome. Um, look forward to those. I hope I say them all in the message. If not, come find me after. Um, if you have a Bible, we are going to be in Romans 8, but we're actually going to start in Psalm 44. Uh, this morning we'll be in Psalm 44. Uh, it'll be on the screen, and I'll talk to us in a bit about why we're going to start in Psalm 44 before we get to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 8 through 13, and then verses 17 through 26. So it'll be on the screen if you want to stay in Romans 8 or if you want to be in both places at one time, you have the freedom to do that. You can be in two scriptures at once. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 8 of Psalm 44. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us, they're talking to God here, you've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. 
You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision, scorn of those around us, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Verse 17. All this came upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you've broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would you not, God, discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We regard as sheep to be slaughtered. Then verse 23, the final section here. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast, your covenant love. Okay, so that is Psalm 44. It is a psalm of lament. It is a psalm of grieving. It's a psalm of pain, uh, like two-thirds of the psalms are. Two-thirds of the psalms are psalms of lament, uh, which means it should be a normal, regular part of our life. And I think especially in the moment we are in and have been in, these psalms are particularly precious to us and, and powerful to us. Uh, more so than in times of plenty, which is, I think, why uh, the Psalms aren't balanced, because life, more times than not, you're going to be in the valley, and you're going to need these Psalms to speak into the reality that you're actually in, and not the one maybe you wish you were in or that you used to be in, but the reality actually that you are in. And I, I love the Psalms so much because the Psalm writers, and we, we don't know the exact context of this Psalm, when it was written or, or why it was, but there's some type of defeat that's happened, some type of maybe it's a military defeat or just this sense that God has abandoned uh, the people here. And, and what they say is that, uh, for one of the few examples in the Old Testament, it's not because that they have done anything wrong. But they say in the actual text that, God, if, if you knew that we were not following you, um, you know that. But you know that we're innocent. We've been following you. We've been uh, seeking you. And yet there's still this destruction and pain and affliction that's coming upon us. And they basically just say, we don't get it. Because you said if we follow you, then we get to go into this beautiful land and things will go well for us. And so help us make sense of the reality that we are experiencing and I love how it ends so powerfully. Um, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget, right? Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Rise up, come to our help, and redeem us. You know, one of the things when I had a crisis of faith when I was in college and basically quit believing in God and quit going to church, which is a story for another time, one of the things that brought me back after I went through all the other religions and explored them um, and read about Buddhism and Hinduism, Confucianism, all, I read about all of them. And I came back to Christianity and I thought, I'm gonna you know, complete my college journey of religious enlightenment, I'm gonna read the Bible, you know, as literature, right? Um, and I started reading through the Bible and I read through parts of the Psalms and actually Lamentations. And I remember being struck by something I was never struck by in any other text, and it was the raw and radical honesty of the writers to God. Right, you, you don't see, wake up God, why are you sleeping in any other text? And if God wanted to, he could have struck that from the record and say, no, I don't, I don't want that in the Bible because that's gonna make people think that I am asleep. 
right? I, I, we don't need that in the Bible, right? God is the ultimate editor. He can put whatever he wants in his word. And so whatever he does put in there, he wants in there. And I remember it gave me a way back into real faith. Instead of just kind of the pat answers that sometimes you get from people, I remember thinking, God, why, why are you letting this happen? And then I read in the Psalms that there's the Psalm writers, uh, the prophets asking the same things. God, why are you sleeping? Do you ever feel like God is asleep in the boat of your life? Do you remember when Jesus was asleep? in the Sea of Galilee and the storm's raging and the disciples are losing their minds like always. <laughs> and Jesus is just snoring away. And they're like, how on earth can you be sleeping in all of this storm? And so often in, in our own lives, and if we look at the world right now, it can be easy to deduce, and many people are, especially who aren't Christians, that God is sleeping. And that Psalm 44 is the ultimate reality of the world. We just say, God, wake up and act and move and do what you said you were going to do. We need you. Quit hiding. Come down in glory and power with your presence. Isn't that what we long for? And the great answer to the cries of the end of Psalm 44 are found at the end of Romans 8. Because the only uh, passage, that Old Testament passage that Paul quotes in Romans 8 at the end is Psalm 44. And so he wants us to have Psalm 44 in mind as we close out Romans chapter 8. Where's the verse? It's uh, verse, if you have it, it's Romans 8, um, 36 and 37. We'll come back to this in more depth, but just for a sec. Paul writes, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Right there, he's quoting Psalm 44, verse 22. And then he goes on with this famous, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I, I've preached on this passage a couple times because it's like, the, it's like the top of Mount Everest. Romans 8 is already Mount Everest, and then the end of Romans 8 is like the peak of the peak of the top of the top. And I've preached on it, and I remember running through this whole thing and just, you know, yelling it as I like to do and talking about it. And then there's this kind of random verse where it says, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I remember just like reading through that really fast to get to the good part at the end, being like, okay, that's kind of a buzzkill. Let's keep going to victory in Christ. I don't know why that's there. I just never really looked it up. I just not looked it up until I thought I should look up why Paul put this here and why he puts it there. Because the, the people who are reading the, the Bible, especially the Jewish readers, would know all the Psalms so deeply. And they're thinking, why is Paul putting Psalm 44 there? Because you cannot live the reality of Romans 8 if you don't experience the grief that comes from the Psalms. And Paul knows that personally very well. So how? How's it happened? Well, let's just read through it, okay? Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 31, and then we'll go to the end. Verse 31, okay. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a great verse, isn't that a great verse? If God is for us, who can be against us? What then shall we say to these things? A great question to this question is what things? What is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking primarily about the verses that Greg talked about last week, especially verses 28 through 30, where Paul talks about all things working together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, uh, that we've been justified and we've been called, justified, uh, glorified, all of these glorious truths. But I think he also probably means the whole book of Romans so far, 
all of it, like all of these beautiful, glorious doctrines and truths, Paul is basically saying, what then is our response to these things? I mean, this is the crescendo to the first part of the entire book. Everything that we have you know, walked through these last 17 years that we've walked through Romans, what now do we say? What is our response? And Paul is going to then go through, this is how we should respond as God people. Because the point of theology is not just to know it in our minds, it's meant to lead to praise. It's meant to lead to worship. I mean, so the, I was telling my wife this, the challenge of preaching this text is that it's better just to read it and to get it out of the way and not just to try and break it down detail by detail because then it loses its luster. It's like trying to describe the Grand Canyon in detail versus just standing before it and worshiping it, Right? And that's the danger that preachers have sometimes when you begin to just get into the weeds sometimes and people lose the actual vista. And so I don't want that to happen. Just to see the beauty of this text, what shall we say to these things? And this is what Paul's gonna say. He's gonna ask all of these rhetorical questions that he already thinks you should know the answer to, but to remind us again of the incredible love that God has for us and how it changes us, how it moves us, how it empowers us how it anchors us, how it matters, not just to know it, but to live it, to be shaped by it. That's what God is for us. I mean, that is the title of the message. God is, God is for us. And how is God for us? We've talked about this a lot. God is for us by being for his glory, for his fame, for his greatness, and for our ultimate good, which is to make us into the image of Christ, right? To grow in us Christ's likeness and godliness. That is how he is for our good. That's how he is for us. And everything God is doing in our lives is for us in the end. And we may only see pieces of that in this life, but one day we will look back and see that everything God did was for a good thing in the end. Everything that he did was for that. And so flip, flip the verse this way and imagine this. If God is against you, who can be for you? I mean, if God is against you, it doesn't matter who's on your team, right? I remember playing recess in fourth grade, and there's a guy named Eric who, who was uh, in our class, and everybody wanted him on our team because he was the greatest football player in the fourth grade. <laughs> I mean, he could do it all, right? Always a team captain. If Eric was on your team, you won. If he wasn't, you lost. That was it. I mean, the game was won when you, when you pick sides. And the game was won when Christ chose you. So it doesn't matter what happens because um, someone much more than Eric is, is your God, right? Is for you. But we always have to define what does for you mean. <laughs> it's for him. And because God is for God, it means that God is for you. Keeps going. Uh, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So now Paul is building an argument from the greater to the lesser right here, So which he does a lot. So Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, he who gave up his own son, Jesus Christ, how will he not also, in addition to that great and glorious gift, graciously give you all things that you may need in your life. And so this verse kind of harkens back to Genesis 22 where Abraham offers up Isaac on Mount Moriah, right? And then God says to him, Abraham, don't, don't kill your son because now I know you love me. You truly love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love. And so now Paul is making us think of that and saying Jesus Christ was offered up, right? And the knife came all the way down and he died, 
so that we can know that God loves us because he didn't withhold his son. And so then if God has, if God has given us the greatest gift, which is salvation by grace through his son, will he not also give us other things too, right? Will he not give us more than that? Again, if we define more than that as being what's for our godliness and what's building up in Christ's likeness. It doesn't mean that God's gonna give you everything you want, right? A lot of things that I want God to give me that would destroy my life, right? Love to have this thing, would love that. That would be an amazing thing to have, right? And sometimes people can take this test in, in a prosperity gospel way and say, if you just declare it, God will give it. Well, not if he doesn't want to give it. He won't. But every, every, look, everything that you need for your life, God will give. And anything you do not need, he will withhold. And I think most of us will spend our whole lives trying to believe that's true. Like actually believe it and shape our desires in light of God's purposes for our life. And not our, not our desires, right, shape everything about what God should do in our life, right? All things don't work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to our these purposes. <laughs> no, but to God's purposes. How will he not? So this is just, Paul is saying, build this trust. Do you not see how God is for you? Look at, I mean, look at your life and all that God has given to you. Everything that God has given to you, right? Right now that you're alive and your heart is beating every second, ba-boom, 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 is God. It's God. He keeps you alive, right? He supplies all of these things that we truly need. But then, so we, we, we say, and often this is true, say, okay, I, I, for a lot of us in this room, we believe that, we know that, yes and amen, God, I, I know that um, I'm saved by grace, but I kind of still walk around with this sense that God has this low-grade fever of disappointment towards me. <laughs> you ever feel like that, right? Uh, where you feel, I know I'm saved by grace, but the week I had, I think that God is disappointed in me just a bit. I think most of my life, sometimes he's just kind of like, RD, you could be so great, but you keep doing all these things and I'm, I'm disappointed in you, right? And so somehow that how I'm living my life for Christ is gonna make him love me more, which is so wrong and so backwards, right? But it's how we live because our hearts are still built on this, this works-based Thing And so I love that Paul goes to next in verse 33 and 34. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And, and we all know this. Charges and condemnations are flying at us all day, every day, aren't they? Uh, from Satan, I mean, his name means the liar and the accuser. His whole mission is to accuse you and to help you live in your sin, in your past, and in your shame. That is what he does. That is how he destroys people, making us doubt God's word and what God says about us that is true. And so that, that is what Satan does, and he is always prowling around like a lion to make us doubt, to make us question, to make us wonder. And then on top of that, there's our own hearts that make us feel condemned because of how we're living. There's other people's verdicts on us that, well, maybe, I mean, God, my parents said this was true about me, or my girlfriend used to say that was true about me, or my boss said this was true about me. So I guess all of those verdicts are actually 
what's true about me, and I'm actually not this person I thought I was, and that then becomes the noise in your life, becomes the reality of your life, these charges and this condemnation that so often we live in because we're not perfect, and we know we're not perfect. I think so often, I'll just speak to dads on Father's Day, so often that as dads, uh, as men, we just feel like we live in this gap of who we're not. And that's where we spend our time, who, who, who we want to be, and we don't celebrate all the things God's given to us and call out this, this glorious in us, and we just spend time um, ashamed of who we're not. Brene Brown writes this. She says, when perfectionism is driving us, shame is always riding shotgun, and fear is the backseat driver. 1 John 3, 19 through 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. John says, yeah, your heart's gonna condemn you. It's natural. But how do you reassure your heart before the Lord? Because you remember you're not condemned. There are no charges against you. God is greater than how you feel about yourself. God does not feel about you the way that you feel about you. God is, I just love that. God is greater than our heart. He knows everything and he still likes you and loves you and wants you in his family. Isn't that amazing? So when Christ is driving us, grace is always riding shotgun and freedom not fear, is the backseat driver. See, Christ here, Paul is saying, Christ gives you a verdict that overturns all the other verdicts that you get in your life. Right? He's your defense attorney. He's also the judge, so that works out pretty well because it's covered. <laughs> Everything is done. Everything is finished, right? There's no condemnation, right? That's how Paul begins Romans chapter 8. He says, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. There is absolutely none. And so I'll just speak for me. I think it's true for most of us, if not all of us. Uh, my greatest battle in my life is to truly believe that Jesus Christ, that he loves all of me. That he loves all of me. I mean, I, I, I believe he loves the good parts of our day. When I have a good day, when I just kill it as a dad or a husband or a pastor, you know, when I have a great sermon, I'm like, today, Lord, yes. I feel the love, but when, you know, I yell at my kids or I just kind of flake out at home or the sermon just bomb or what, whatever, I just feel like this, this just sense of like God is, um, he just doesn't love that part. And so, so often what we have to do is, is continually preach to ourselves the gospel and not listen to the enemy or to ourselves about what is true. I mean, Paul says, what charge can they bring against you? Right? What, what charge could they, what court are they gonna charge you in? It's, it's God's court, right? There's no condemnation for you. Why? Because he goes on, he says, Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ died for us, God raised Christ for us, so everything Christ did now uh, is validated. But not only that, what is Jesus Christ, not just did in the past, but what is he doing right this very second, right this very moment, right? June 21st, 11, 
6.53, I think, a.m. Eastern time. What is God doing right now? Well, Romans tells us. It tells us. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I love that Jesus Christ right now is relaxed. He is not, you know, running around heaven wondering what's going on in the world. He is at peace. He is in control. Look, Jesus Christ holds the whole world together so you don't have to. We don't have to, right? He, he holds it together. Right now, he's at the right hand of God, all authority, all power, and one, one day when he comes back, everything evil and dark will be crushed. But not only is he seated there, you know, the ascension, right now he is interceding for us at this moment. What does that mean? It means right now Jesus Christ is praying for you and thinking of you right this second if you're in him. So it's not just in the past that he loves you. Because I think it's easy to look at the cross and say, I know he loved me that day. I know it. But right now, in this reality, he is interceding for you to God the Father, meaning that he's saying to God the Father who fully accepts it. He's not having to convince God, right? God fully accepts it. He's, he's saying, no, the lies of the enemy, the lies of the accuser, no, 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 no. They are not greater than the advocate. They are not greater than my final word on this. It is finished does not mean that it is still to be done. It means it is done to tell us die. It is completed. It is over. And so all Jesus is doing in heaven right now is applying his work he did on the cross to God the Father and saying, R.D., well may the accuser war of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Because Jesus Christ right now is interceding to God and saying, look at my beautiful son, my beautiful daughter, covered by my blood. The enemy can just be silenced. Hebrews 7.25, Christ is able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what the word uttermost means? It means uttermost. In the Greek, it means totality and completeness. Christ is able to save completely and totally to the uttermost. Because we were the uttermost broken and sinful and wicked and fallen. God's grace is greater than your sinfulness. And God's love for you is greater than your love for him. And the reason that you don't let go of Christ is not because you don't let go, but because he doesn't let go of you. That, that is why. He's, he lives to make intercession for those who draw near to him. He lives for it. He delights in it. He loves it. He delights this very moment until we come home to make intercession for every single one of you in Christ. Is that not a comforting thought? Does that not reframe Psalm 44 and reframe your life when you think about how Jesus Christ actually feels about you? How he thinks about you? How his heart just, how it goes towards you? Well, we'll finish with where Paul finishes. My goodness, is this not the, is this not the peak, friends? Verse 35 
What, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. It is as written, here's Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, <laughs> no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we just get out of the way of that verse. So Romans 8.1 begins with no condemnation. Romans 8 ends with no separation. There's no condemnation, and now there's no separation. That is what Paul, the totality of it is breathtaking. This sense of we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the Greek, it literally means super conqueror or hyper conqueror, which sounds amazing, right? So conquerors, there's that word, kids, if you're still with me. Okay, conquerors. There it is. I said it. I promise there's one. Conquerors through him who loved us, right? So what does it mean? It means that the hard things, the affliction, the pain, the, the sin, all the famine, pandemics, right? Uh, racial strife, all these things don't only not separate us from the love of Christ, they drive us deeper into the love of Christ. It presses us even further into his heart because the very places where you sin the most and where you suffer the most are the very places Christ wants to love you the most. That's where he wants to love you the most. That's where he wants to break the dam of your resistance and just flood you with who he is and what his grace is. And our resistance only stops us from experiencing his love in the hardest places of our life and of this moment. We are more than conquerors. John Piper puts it this way. He says about conquerors. Why, why does Paul not just say conquerors but more than conquerors? Piper says, a conqueror defeats his enemy. But one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. Woo! A conqueror strikes down his foe. One who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his servant. Ooh. God not only delivers us from our afflictions, he uses the afflictions in your life to make you more like his son and to shave off the dark places and to grow the beautiful places that we would not be who we and the church will not be the church in the future if we do not handle this moment that we are in with truth and grace and with God's power not our own we are not more than conquerors because of our ability to conquer it we are more than conquerors through what through him who loved us Imagine how precious the promises of these verses are to be more than conquerors, that the worst things in your life, actually God doesn't just discard, but say those are the actually the places I'm gonna redeem the most beautifully. Imagine how precious these promises are, especially to those who suffer deeply for the persecuted church, for those with a, with a debilitating disease, for refugees. I mean, imagine it for black people in the United States. To, to be more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. I mean, just two days ago, we celebrated Juneteenth, which is um, uh, for June 19th, where the, one of the final acts of emancipation, where slaves in Texas were told that they were finally free. 
two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, 155 years ago, two days ago, told that, told that they were free. You know, in the slave Bibles that existed, there's one at the Museum of the Bible that I've seen up in D.C., they had over nine, Bibles that were given to slaves had over 90% of the Old Testament taken out. Why? Because they knew who, they, they knew who God was, who he is with, that you were not a victim, right? You were more than a conqueror through him who loved you. That's what's true about you. That's the truest thing about you. We are greater than whoever stands against us. We're greater. How precious are these promises to those who suffer the deepest? Last couple of things here. I used this in a sermon a couple years ago uh, on Genesis 50, 20, which is a great inspiration for this, this uh, verse here. Uh, it's where God says, where Joseph says, well, man meant for evil, God meant for good. And I used the illustration of Kintsuki. And I'm going to use it again because I think we need it in 2020. <laughs> I think we need to see how God works. And so uh, Kintsuki is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery with powdered gold, silver, or platinum. As a philosophy, it treats breakage and repair as part of the history of an object to be celebrated rather than something to disguise. And so and they'll just take a piece of pottery, they'll put it back together, and then this is what it looks like. they highlight the broken places because they believe that when you bring the broken places back together, you actually highlight in a greater degree the beauty of this thing, how, how beautiful and glorious it is. Isn't that what God does for us? Isn't that how we're more than conquerors that everything that we walk through in our life, God doesn't discard and say, just forget that. It didn't really matter. You didn't have to go through that. He says, no, I'm gonna redeem it and I'm gonna paint gold over the blood and bind you back together again, even through your tears and your pain. One of the great questions that our small group leaders, Kevin and Amy Denning, they have, I'm sure you others have it on their, in their apartment, is just this, this question that says, what if it's good? I mean, what if, what if everything we're walking through right now is actually good? And if we don't walk through it, we'll never be the people God actually is asking us to be. I mean, I believe that. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I'll finish with this. Um, why, why, why is God for you? Because he is. That, that's the end of the sentence. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. That, that's why. That's the lesson. <laughs> why? Because he does. Because it's who he is, right? That's what the cross is all about. The cross does not make God love us. Because God loves us, there is the cross. Amen. 
And we have to get, we have to know that. We have to know that the security we need to face the world that we live in, to walk as we're walking, to love the people in our life, only comes if we're walking and experiencing and encountering and being empowered by the love of Christ inside of us. We have to know who we are as the people of Jesus if we are going to go then be salt and light in our world. We have to have that security. We have to know it. When my girls, uh, the night before my girls were born, I wrote them a letter because I'm a verbal, not a verbal, a writing processor, whatever you call that. I guess a computer, right? That's me. (laughs) And I like to write things down. And so they were born New Year's Day, so I wrote them them this letter on uh, New Year's Eve, 2013. Uh, My goodness, a long time ago. And I won't read the whole thing to you for time's sake because the time is going. But the title of it was called I Love You Because I Love You a letter to my daughters the day before you're born. And so I'll close with this. The truth is, I have no idea what being a parent is really like. I have, I have three kids now, but this is for two twin girls. Obviously, they're two. Um, I have no idea what being a parent is really like, what being a father is really like. I have no idea what the years ahead will hold for all of us. I hope someday you'll be able to see my heart and how incredibly much I loved you. And why do I love you, you ask? Because you're my daughter. Not because of how smart you will be, though I know you'll be much smarter than me. Not because of how beautiful you are, though I know you'll be gorgeous girls inside and out. Not because of anything you'll ever achieve or do, though I know you will achieve and do far more than I could ever dream for you both. I love you first and foremost because you're mine, my daughters, my girls, and nothing will ever change that. So here's to all that lies ahead, to long nights, my goodness, yes, to girl-crazy birthday parties, yes, to bathtub times, to running and stroller times, to, the, to come, teenage years of fights and rolling of the eyes. Not my girls, of course. Just, I wanted to write this in general, of course. <laughs> to Thanksgivings and Christmases with two beautiful and messy families you're being born into. To praying every day that one day you will come to know the God of your father, a much greater father who loves you far more deeply and perfectly than I ever could. And to these verses sinking into your souls, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am convinced the best part of my life is about to start and it's all your fault. I hardly feel ready, but you didn't ask me. You just decided to come and start your lives, and I can't wait to see what lives you girls will live. One more thing before I go, and one I hope you'll always know. I love you because I love you. I always have. I always will. I'll see you tomorrow. Love, Dad. See, the love of Jesus is the love you've been looking for your whole life. It's the anchor. It's it's everything. So what shall we say to these things? My goodness, what can we not say? Father, we love you. And we thank you for this passage, for this book, for, for more than that, for these truths that you wrote. Help us be people that live the reality that God is for us, who can be against us.
we love you, Lord. Thanks for loving every part of us and for repairing all the broken parts and painting them gold. In Christ's name, we pray. All God's people said, amen.